Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Mind the Gap podcast. Today is a slightly different episode of the Mind the Gap podcast. So far we've been speaking to a lot of people around the world of healthcare predominantly, but today we're still venturing into a slight avenue which is academia, still very closely linked to healthcare, but this is going to be a slightly different conversation. I'm joined by three wonderful ladies and I will allow each of them to introduce themselves. So on my screen, on the top right, is Dr. Willows. Please, could you introduce yourself? Yes, thank you for having me on. So my name is Dr. Tamara Malenga-Willows. I'm a medical doctor practicing here in the UK, a researcher quite due in my career, but working for the University of Oxford within the Nuffield Department of Medicine, Global Health and um, Tropical Medicine Unit, specifically on health systems. And yeah, I'll pass on to Melanie to introduce herself. Uh, hi, thank you so much, Malone, for having us on. So uh, my name is Dr. Melanie Etty. Um, I'm also a medical doctor, currently working also at the University of Oxford at the Center for Clinical Vaccinology and Tropical Medicine. Um, and I will soon be commencing um, an academic clinical fellowship in infectious diseases and medical microbiology. So starting medical specialty training soon. Right. And Professor Oshia, please. Hi, thank you, Malone, um, for having us here. We're looking forward to the discussions. I'm um, Professor Amak Oshia. I am a medical, um, a clinical academic. I work at the University of Sheffield and Sheffield Children's Hospital. And my area of interest research-wise is um, children's bones, um, fractures, and why do they fracture, and diagnosing child abuse. Okay, amazing. Well, it's great to have the three of you on the podcast. As I mentioned, this is the first time we've had three guests at once. Um, and I think probably my first question is, how how do you three know each other? I guess I can address that. So um, we were all connected through um, a, an advisory group that was set up by the Medical Research Council. Uh, which is called the Black and Biomedical Research Advisory Group. And it was an advisory group that was set up to essentially address the disparity, well, the racial disparity among um, academics within biomedical research. Um, and I know that we'll, we'll go on to talk about this in a bit more detail in a, in a moment, but there is a real disparity among, um, well, among races, but particularly affecting Black people. Uh, within academia, uh, we are woefully underrepresented. And um, yeah, I think the MRC and other funding bodies such as Welcome are starting to look at this and trying to address this. And so this advisory group was set up um, and the three of us sit within that advisory group and that's how we became connected. And, and just to add to what... Well. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to add to what Melissa said that it's amazing that we were connected in this way because even for, um, for Melanie and I, we work at the same university, but we'd never met each other, never encountered each other. But of course, both obviously thinking about the same issues, but we're able to then be connected to this advisory group. So definitely a very great platform and initiative to be part of. And I think that's a recurring theme, if I may say so, across um, academia, that we need the networks. There aren't many of us, so we don't see ourselves particularly frequently and we don't know who there is. And that actually sort of re-emphasizes the feelings of isolation 
and stops other people who might have gone into academia, other black people who might have gone into academia, not doing so because they're not even aware of the numbers are small, but they see nobody. So they, the numbers appear even lower than they actually are. Mm. And, and Professor Ophia, you mentioned that the numbers are small. Um, could you maybe tell us some of those small numbers and what is the impact of those numbers being small? So I think there are something so slightly over 23,000 professors. So we're looking at the professorial level, which is the highest tier in academia in the United Kingdom. And there are 23,000 slightly over that professors in, in total. And then of, of those, we have 165, so less than 1% are black. And then of those, 41 are female. I think the last the last female was appointed late last year, November 2022. So there are very few black female professors. Um, generally, as as in anything, you have it's a pyramid. So that so the uh, the, the you have a, at the lowest level you have the numbers, but the number of blacks in academia are lower than they should be given the number of blacks in the general society. And then the rate of attrition is far higher. So even amongst the whites, there are always going to be fewer professors right at the top than there are the um, the, the the sort of initial undergraduate, postgraduate level. But our attrition rate is much higher. There's many more dropping out and going into other sectors. And we need to understand why. And I know um, both... Dr. Willows and Dr. to you guys are slightly lower down that pyramid in comparison. Um, professor Ophia just mentioned about how there is attrition on almost this ladder to becoming a professor. Have you guys started to experience, um, well, have you seen why potentially that rate of attrition is as high as it is? Um, you know, just speaking from my own experience, I think it can be quite difficult to get the relevant experience that you need in order for you to progress within academia because it often requires you to have references. I know for myself when I was I was also applying for an academic clinical fellowship which luckily I got but it requires you to have references and people to back you up and say this person has the required skills in order for them to succeed within academia and if you haven't had that exposure within your undergrad years opportunities to engage in research can be very difficult even if you do have the potential for you to progress within that space. Yeah, I'm I'm just going to echo what you said. I mean, I think it's just interesting. I I do think that there are a lot of black people and people of color who do have that potential. Um but it, as we mentioned before, it's a not seeing people that look like you within the spaces that you want to enter. And I guess just thinking about my own experience, I think in a way I've sort of suffered from affinity bias in this in the sense that opportunities have been given to people who may you know look like the people who are offering the opportunities and then you know even though I'm eager I'm willing to do the work I feel that you know those uh, those doors haven't necessarily been open so it definitely has been a challenge I would say even getting to this point point. Um, and so I think getting to you know professorship I, I can imagine is a, a fight in itself. I mean, it's interesting, Melanie, that you talk about affinity bias. So um, obviously people people tend to incline towards people who look like themselves and to feel more 
able to subconsciously or consciously to um, promote them and to write better references for them. There is also, there has been in my experience, those who feel that they're actually helping a person of colour by uh, discouraging them from continuing in academia because there are so few people of colour in academia. And this is something that I have been directly, um, this is something that I know to be true because I was approached, uh, someone complained to me about it. So individuals, sometimes they think they're helping. It's not necessarily um, racism, but they, you know, <laughs> but they do think that they're helping by saying actually people are not doing well. But there's no reason why a person should not do well purely on the basis of skin colour. So I would advocate that people should be judged on merit and on potential um, rather than on, <laughs> obviously, than on skin colour. So do you think, um, do you think that, is, is that good advice? And if we're thinking practically, like, do you think they're offering good advice there or is it just advice which is completely absurd? No, I don't think it's good. Uh, are you asking if it's good advice for someone not to do something because of their skin colour? Yeah, I'm asking if it's good advice for someone not to do something based on the premise that when they get into that role, people like them won't be in that role. I think it's just not good advice. If that were the advice, I wouldn't be here now um, as, a, as a black female professor. Um, you, you may have to change your environment. You know, um, you, but, but if you if it's something you want to do and you're able to do it, then you should do it. It, it isn't. <laughs> I'm not going to be the the fastest swimmer. I'm not going to swim the channel. I'm not going to climb Mount Everest. But in my own role, I can. I, I and so somebody should advise me not to because of my ability to swim or climb, but not because of my skin color. Um, I would say to to people to seek mentors. They don't have to be in your own institution but to seek mentors who will promote you and support you. You have to work hard, irrespective of, of skin colour. But, but no, never will I ever say to somebody not to do something because of their skin colour. And it might, I would say that for that sort of advice, someone could actually flip it and say you could encourage someone, but say to them that you might encounter some challenges that some of your colleagues might not experience because they're not as many people within this field that look in the same way that you do, but it should never be used as a justification for why somebody shouldn't pursue a particular field within academia. Absolutely. And for me, it was a challenge, you know, um, if there aren't any, well, I'm going to be one of them. Yes. Did you ever, did you, um, specifically for Professor Ophir, um, did you ever feel like, I know when, uh, when we talk about like the first black person to do X or to do Y, um, or you being one of the first and still one of the first, given that there's only 40, um, 41 black female professors. Did you ever feel like you had the weight of essentially your entire community on your shoulders as you're navigating through this space? So in a way, I'll answer two ways. So first of all, I had no idea about the numbers. Um, to be honest, you know, I didn't, I never applied for anything until I was sure I was going to get it. Beforehand, I'd go and talk to people and I would gauge, so, you know, I would gauge what the head of department, what they felt about my CV and things. And if there was any, any doubt at all, I, I, I didn't apply. So I, I maybe could have got my chair earlier, but I wasn't going to give any sort of reason or, or excuse, you know, for somebody to 
cover it up in case there was racism. So at the time that I applied, there was just no doubt that I was going to get promoted to professor. And I was, um, I was at a church group um, and I was mentioning that I'd been promoted or my husband might have told them. And it was the actual, one of the hosts, um, he said, do you know that you're the only black female professor in medicine? And then he, I didn't, I, you know, then he researched it and then the numbers came out. So before then, I had no clue that um, the numbers were so low. So in that aspect, I felt no pressure at all because I, I assumed there were many. The assumption was, you know, people have sort of walked on the moon, haven't they, we're told. So there was no way in my head that there was this sort of number or this kind of thing to, 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 um, to sort of aim for, you know. So no, I, there was no pressure there. But I, and I do, I give talks. And one of the things I say is that when I came, I trained in Nigeria. And when I came from Nigeria to England, the first job I got was a house officer post in Old Church Hospital. And I went to the interview. I got the job. A year later, um, the, the, the same man who had um, interviewed me sort of shouted out um, on the wards, we've employed another one like you which is probably not the world's best way of phrasing things, but I realized he, he meant it well. I'd got the job, I did the job, I, I maybe did it well enough that he was happy to employ another Nigerian. So I understood that I was the ambassador for other Nigerian doctors. Um, I, I don't mind that, you know, work hard, do what's right. If it's going to help somebody else get a job, I don't, that's fine. Okay, great. Um, I think it's very interesting to always to always hear about almost the trailblazers in specific fields. Um, and I think one of the things when we're talking about people being trailblazers is, for instance, Professor Ophia being in the position that um, Dr. Willows and Dr. Etty can almost have someone to follow on. Um, it was briefly mentioned about mentors and that we should seek out mentorship. Um, and I would love to learn from you, Dr. Etty, um, how, what has your experience gaining mentors in the field of academia been like? And how do you think a mentor can help you actually progress through the field? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say actually that I've been fortunate enough to have some great mentors in my, you know, along the way in my journey through academia. Um, they haven't always looked like me. In fact, I don't think I've had any mentors that look like me. Um, but it's important that they sort of believe in me I think that's that's been an important um important for a good relationship with a mentor um so my initial academic job was um with a professor that worked works at St George's and one of her um one of the main things she does is try and get you know young female doctors into academia and I think that was really important in helping me get to where I am at the moment. And I remain very close with her. And actually, I was fortunate enough to gain a mentor through a mentorship scheme. And actually, that was something that is something I would recommend. Um, so I was paired with a professor in, in global health um, who works at uh, UEL um, and has been my mentor for the past two years. And I think I've I've gone through a lot of transitions over the last few years and a lot of stressful periods. Obviously, Tamara and I both applied for the academic clinical fellowship, and it's quite good to have someone in your corner who can sort of pick you up 
will A, listen to you and B, pick you up when you're feeling less than confident about yourself. I think we also, um, in a recent meeting, we had talked about the I, the concept of mentorship and sponsorship and this idea that actually it's good to try and find people who are not only in a position to give you advice, but also provide you with opportunities. So sponsorship and um, I think, yeah, I hope to be in that position one day, but it is very challenging. I think we're in a difficult landscape, um, but it's really wonderful. I think just kind of reflecting on what um, Professor Macca said about, you know, rising to the top and also wanting others to follow in, in you know, your footsteps. I think that's so important. You know, so often you hear about the one and only and, you know, it may be that actually the door is slammed behind them, but actually we want that door to remain open so that more of us can come in. And so it's just really nice to reflect on that. I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a great reflection point. And I kind of just wanted to move into finding out where the, where the problem actually lies, um, because we can sit here and discuss that there is a lot of challenges in academia and progressing from a junior role to a more um, being a professor at the top. Um, but do you think there's, there's any part of the problem which starts when people are at school, essentially, and progression from school age is almost halted, and then that kind of has a knock-on effect all the way? Or if not, where does the problem actually start in your eyes? And Dr. Willows, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Yeah, I've read several articles that try to explore where the problem might be for Black people progressing within academia. There's a Nature article that looked at Black people more in the sciences and why there's this attrition, particularly once people get, get past the undergraduate stage. And it's really multifactorial. So for some people who they had interviewed as part of their exploration of this topic, cited that for many people who come from ethnic minority backgrounds in the UK, they do come from environments where they might be from a low socioeconomic um status and therefore some might feel the pressure to go into a role that allows you to earn more quite quickly after undergraduate status because sometimes when you're working in research you don't make as much money as people are making in the city although you are making a significant contribution to society and to life overall but some people might have care responsibilities that mean that they can't go into something like academia or research in general because they don't feel like they have that financial bandwidth for other people, it might also be that they've never considered going into academia full-time or even into any area of research because they've not seen people like them and might not feel like this is a space that they belong in. They might not feel like they have lecturers or people that they can speak to at their institutions in order to explore whether this is a career path that would be suitable for them. And I think, as um, Professor Ophi had mentioned, you know, just if you are interested and someone tells you, actually, I don't think this is for you because they aren't people who look like you within this field. You might instantly be discouraged and think if someone who's already in it is telling me I don't belong there, then there's no point in me seeking a second opinion opinion or trying to explore this for myself. So I think it's really multifactorial, but I think within the UK, it's multifaceted in terms of socioeconomic status, finances, mentors, and also seeing people who look like yourself going into it. I think it's slightly different for colleagues who do um, come up within institutions in Africa because I've had some experience of working with 
researchers who are based in Kenya, Zambia, Tanzania. And although you might not have as many opportunities to get into it, I think because you do see people look like yourself all the time with the person who's the head of research, head of different departments looks like you, then you don't necessarily have that feeling like you don't belong. It just might be a case of finding the right opportunity to get involved. And what about you, Dr. Etsy? I'd love to... Yeah, I mean, I I was also sort of thinking about, um, so within the MRC, uh, one of the things that we've done is look at the data, um, looking at applicants and, well, those that apply and those that are successful um, when applying for grants. Um, so funding for PhDs, so studentships, funding for their own research, uh, research projects. And at every single level, and I think this is what we've discussed at literally every level, black people are vastly up underrepresented. So there are some ethnic groups that are overrepresented within those figures, but black people consistently at every level, so PhD, uh, postdoc level, PI, underrepresented at every level. And so I think in addition to everything that Tamara said, I think it's sort of undeniable that and I know that this word makes people feel squeamish, but I think we need to say it, that I do think that racism does play a part. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean a conscious dislike of black people, but I mean that there are factors within the, these processes that unfairly disadvantage black people compared to people of other races. And I think we need to unpick those. Some of those may be systemic. Some of them may be institutional. Some of them may be unconscious, but some may be conscious. And I think that's what we're trying to unpack as part of this advisory group and try and see what we can change. You know, more black people should be applying for um, these, you know, these funding opportunities. Why, why are they not? And then when they do apply, why is it that black people aren't getting these, you know, these these funding opportunities. And I think there's just so many layers of difficulty for black people within the field of academia that you can understand why there is that attrition. It's hard. You have to be incredibly determined. I'm sure Professor Amaka can attest to that. You have to be determined. And actually, I think the doors need to be open slightly wider so that people who have a range of circumstances can be successful in this field. You know, I think we need to try and disperse the gatekeepers and just make, you know, kind of democratize the field so that more people can access it and more people can engage in research. Um, Professor, Professor Ophia, I'd love to, as someone who's kind of at the top of this ladder, um, what are some of those layers and barriers that our community are facing? Because I know I remember I was at a conversation specifically around progression of black medical students. And the argument which was posed then was, we say that we don't have many black medical students, but at the same time, black people are not applying to do medicine. So if we look at, say, there's 100 black medical students, if only 110 applied, that's actually really good. But having 100 black medical students is not really good when you then compare that to the rest of the medical applicants. Um, so just to go back, like what, what are some of those layers that black people are facing in progressing in academia? I mean, I think that really Tamara and Melanie have said it. It's at every single level. Just to make something clear, I think there's sufficient diversity. I think blacks 
and ethnic minorities are actually overrepresented in medicine in terms of clinicians and doctors. But as you go up, there are fewer of them on committees. There are fewer of them who are heads of departments. And as you go up in terms of responsibility, then the numbers go down and they, and they, are, they become underrepresented, which is more stark because they began off overrepresented as a whole. So I think we need to be clear about that. I have nothing really to add to what Tamara and Melanie have said at every single stage. Um, and, and generally in academia, even if blacks come in with the same A-level results, they, they leave with lower grades. So there's something going on in the whole system. Um, in, in publications, in high-impact journals, in, um, I, I'm, a, I'm the editor of Journal Pediatric Radiology for Europe and um, outside Americas. And in we, we, the, the numbers coming in are low, the numbers accepted are low, the, 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 those who are writing about um, research in Zambia, for example, or Uganda, are often based in America or, or in, in England. Um, you know, so there's, there is all this attrition. If we look at numbers, because when we're specifically concentrating on a academia, there are um, the Medical Schools Council they, they published, I think it was in 20, I had it written down somewhere, 2020, May 2020. And what they, they said that there were 478 academic posts for GPs. GPs are sort of first line, you know, contact. Um, 478 academic posts, of which 30 were BAME. And I can assure you that of those 30 BAME, there will be fewer than, you know, how many are going to be black? So, when, you know, so, so BME, BAME. And I'm sorry if people don't like that acronym. It's just it's the one that comes immediately, sprung immediately to mind. And I know it's not perfect. But um, so numbers of GPs, academic, very low. In my own field in radiology, there are 45 academic posts and six academic radiologists who are BME. Um, potentially two or three of us are black, I don't know. So, so, so everywhere, the numbers are small. And then you have to say, if we're talking about things like affinity bias, what is my research related to ethnicity? Do I think about ethnicity when I propose research questions, or when I'm when I'm considering the patient population? Does does my research recruit them? And often we recruit those who speak English. Now I'm not saying that black people don't speak English. But a lot of the immigrants and things who are ethnic minorities may not speak English. They then are excluded from the research project because they cannot read the um, the, the, the patient information sheet. Um, do I actually are my focus groups diverse? You know, um, it's there's so many of these questions that you have to ask yourselves, um, and then it impacts on the health of the of, of the minorities. Mm -hmm. And I think it's um, that kind of leads me into something that I've thought about quite a lot. And that's a lot of what we know, like as science, um, is research that usually comes from the Western world. So that's like Europe, America. Um, however, when we look at research in Africa, for instance, or the Caribbean, um, the Caribbean, typically speaking, um, from speaking to other professors, research that is coming out of those spaces is not as weighted as much as research which is coming out of Oxford, for instance, or Harvard. Um, what are the challenges that people in Africa, in academia, are facing and how can we almost 
on an international level, almost level the playing field for all people who are in academia? So, so I think um, what part of what I was saying is that if the research is coming out of, for example, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, it doesn't matter where it's based, it's going to do well. But often those researchers may not necessarily be indigenous to the countries that we're talking about. So, but what you're asking is if a, a native person is writing research from, for example, Nigeria. In radiology, in my field, part of the problem is um, it's just funding. They can't compete for the research questions that need, that, that others are, are um, doing outside of the countries. A lot of that is because of the technology. So, for example, the computer tomography machines, and many of them don't have magnetic resonance imaging scanners. And so the papers that they are writing are based on on equipment that we were using in this country, um, you know, a decade ago, for example. And I hope that I don't exaggerate. So, so in a way, research is about cutting edge. So it's very difficult to be cutting edge if you're using equipment that came from ten years previously. And um, there, there is of course the the brain drain. A lot of the papers that we see are not written to the. And you know, this is it. Maybe just that we need more education. Um, we're setting up blogs to help, um, not blogs, webinars to help to train in terms of what are editors actually looking for and how can you write your paper to meet the, the, the requirements of an editorial system. We're hoping to set up a sort of tier where, where, where in, in the countries themselves, they um, review the papers and the research projects before they're submitted so they get up to a certain standard so that they maybe are accepted rather than being rejected. Um, have I strayed? Am I answering your question? No, that, that is that is what we we're looking for. And Dr. Willows, I know you've done some work in Zambia. Um, have you noticed kind of similar patterns in Zambia? I know in Zambia at the moment there is a heavy emphasis on almost Chinese funding and Chinese investment into Zambia. And does that play a part in academic research at all? Um. The academic side actually is very different funding-wise from the economic side in Zambia and Tanzania and Kenya, both of whom also receive quite a lot of funding from the Chinese government. But when it comes to research, a lot of funding does come primarily from the United States, United States-based organizations. Um, the UK and Germany are the next biggest funders of healthcare research within many African countries, as well as countries in Asia and South America. One of the main issues that I found when I was speaking with colleagues who are based in Kenya, Tanzania, and Zambia is the cost of public of publishing an article. So even once you've gotten to the point where you've got your funding to do the work, you've collected your data, you've written your paper up, many journals charge quite significant amounts of money in order for you to publish. My colleagues and I just published an article recently, our fees were £3,900 in order for us to publish our article that was submitted. I know other journals such as Nature um, charge as much as £8,000 in order for people to submit. And so if you've got a budget that's quite constrained, you've used it in order for you to carry out the work. People often don't have some left over in order for you to pay these significant publication fees. Some journals have do have policies where they waive the fees for... Um, authors who are publishing from low middle income countries, but it's not not all the quote unquote prestigious journals are doing that. Sometimes within academia, certain institutions want you to publish in uh, a journal that has what we call a high impact factor, one that loads of people are reading, where 
people are more likely to cite it in their articles in order for you to progress within your career. So I think accessing funding to do the work is something that's quite difficult when you are based in an institution that is based in Zambia, Tanzania, Kenya, Malawi, those sort of areas, because there is this bias that some funders have towards wanting the main applicant of the, the funding to be based in Europe or to be based in the United States or Canada. And then you as an African institution will be a partner and you get some of the money from there because they believe we don't have the infrastructure in order to be the main applicant and facilitate the administration of funds, although they are other universities, the University of Ghana have recently been successful in being a lead applicant in a project in which they're working with the University of Harvard, University of Oxford, where they are the ones dispersing the money to Harvard and Oxford's colleagues. But they're the first that have been given this opportunity within the specific field in the global health um, project. And so they're, they, they're feeling the pressure in order for them to not have any issues. So of course, that could be used as an excuse of why we don't give African institutions the money to lead projects. And so that's just some of the experiences that um, colleagues that I've worked with have had. I think I think that we should say, I think it's only fair to say that they do, that the money that these countries, USA, certainly the United Kingdom is giving, is often um, public money. So, so there is um, an element of which they have to be seen to be doing things that are also helpful to, to us here, to the people, the population in the United Kingdom. Because it is public money that they're often spending to 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 um to fund the research projects, I think we just should say that as well. Mm. So just almost thinking out loud here, um, if we kind of go back to wanting to democratize the world of academia so that we can have more diversity and more people like ourselves in these roles, is probably not the area that we should almost start with, or maybe like one of the key focuses be the area around funding and almost gatekeeping academic papers. Um, because from what what I've taken away in just this two minutes is if there was a world where publication, for instance, was cheaper, then potentially we would have more people publishing, then potentially we would have more almost like role models that we can see who are publishing papers regularly. Um, is is that kind of a line of thinking which makes sense or have I just completely simplified something which is a lot more complex I it's not you don't um so open access is is what I think Tamara is talking about there's different types of publication and open access in this digital era is often that the, the journal publishes online so it's no longer printed um, um and anyone can then is if it's published open access you simply click on the link and you have the full you have access to the full paper before it used to be by subscription. If you belonged to a society, for example, you would subscribe to the journal, and you'd be paying your annual subscription rate, um, and and then you'd get this journal sent to you, for example. Um, so the 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 payment of three thousand five hundred is for gold open access um, publication. If you uh, so it's not simply just um, uh, about the funding. It's you do have to get your your paper is is like like I was saying it's the questions, and is it really novel? How cutting edge is it? So a lot of the sort of nature journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, they're they're not going to publish something that isn't cutting edge. Um, even if they even if they're not publishing it open access, uh, they're not going to if it's if it's if it's not competing with mm. 
with the cutting edge. And so I think a lot of it is the infrastructure. Um, they, 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 do, they do have, when it's something to do with infectious diseases, for example, then, then that's, so, so, so we need to be strategic, I think, in thinking of the topics that we research that, that are coming from these countries. Um, uh, if, the, if, the, if the investigators are not based in the United Kingdom, I think they need to be strategic or in America about what they're actually publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. I think sometimes, of course, like someone looking outside, looking in, could maybe like I'm potentially from the outside looking in, could maybe look at something and say, "Oh, it's so simple." But then when you actually start to get to the finer details, everything becomes more and more complex. Um, I think probably one other area that I wanted to touch upon was the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, we're actually recording this episode on Juneteenth. Um, however, when it comes out, it's another story. Um, but pre-Black Lives Matter movement, um, more specifically the murder of George Floyd, did you notice any changes like pre the murder of George Floyd versus now after? And what role do you think these changes, if any, or if not any, have played in like the progression of more Black people in academia? I mean, that, that's why I used the word racism before. I mean, I think, you know, I, I perhaps can't speak for everyone, but I, I will say that I think people are now starting to acknowledge that racism does play a role in the disparities and um, the, you know, poorer outcomes in lots of different domains that are seen, you know, between black people and white people. Um, and I think obviously around the time of um, George Floyd's death, we did see a sort of flurry of efforts, you know, you know, people wanting to try and redress the issues that face the black community. And sort of three years on, it's difficult to know how much of that, you know, still that effort still remains. I think the challenge that we find in the UK is that we're still debating whether racism still exists. And I think, you know, we've had, you know, a lot of high, um, uh, sorry, uh, a lot of like well-known reports and, and, and statements made by people in, in positions of power that have contested whether racism, systemic and institutional racism exists and I, I question why we're still having this conversation. I think it's really important that we try and move forward from that, that we try and actually look to make change and 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 yeah, implement changes and, and measure their effects. And I will say that I'm for that reason I'm quite proud to be on the MRC's advisory group or within the MRC's advisory group. It is a a as far as I can see a an concrete step that they're taking to try and redress the imbalance um and yeah i mean i think the mrc is not the only funding body that's that's doing this as i mentioned welcome also have an initiative um there's still a long way to go i would say um but you know i i'm at least grateful for these small changes and um, small steps being taken uh but yeah still a really long way to go i would say and dr willows on on the point of looking forward 
even though we have a long road ahead, what do you think we should be doing both as the black community and both from a academic community standpoint for us to increase that number, which was a hundred, which was 41 black female professors to get it to a point where it's entering the hundreds and then potentially the thousands. I think talking and having more and more conversations where we can put this information out there, we can connect with each other. Cause I think again, it's still not known by many people, just how few the numbers are when it comes to black professors as well and black female professors within the UK across all fields, let alone within the biomedical sciences. And so I think having conversations, not just amongst ourselves as academics, but also among people who are at school age. I know like my colleagues in Kenya have a really good program where they partnered with many different schools to show the school kids this is what a researcher actually does. This is what academics are actually doing. There are people who come from similar communities as you, and then that can show people the pipeline and the, the trajectory that they could follow you know, for them to also contribute to their sites and their communities. So just having more connection between the different levels within both uh, academia, undergraduate um, level university, as well as even the secondary school, just making sure that we're connecting with each other more. Is that connecting with each other more as in us within the black community have to connect with each other more or is that academia having to connect their own dots to be able to almost reach out to the black community? I think both because I think it can be a two-way street because I've been involved recently with a really good project um, the University of Oxford are doing connecting researchers with the local community where I was not aware of some of the health initiatives that the local community had started and they really wanted engagement with researchers and with people who are in the know within these fields and not knowing how to reach out to them because they had really great ideas for projects that we could be applying for funding for and vice versa they were then able to learn about ways in which they could affect the work that they're doing and so I think reaching out can be a two-way street and people saying hey we're interested because that's another thing you hear particularly in biomedical research, all black people are hard to reach. They don't want to be involved with, it, with research and contributing. And so showing people actually know we are interested in getting involved and we're interested in having more of our people involved as well. Okay, cool. That's very interesting to, to her. I know in the work that I do, it frustrates me so much when people say black people are hard to reach. Um, and I always refer to the various leaders that I speak to, to a video of me walking around in Brixton and just approaching strangers on the street and asking them questions, um, specifically about healthcare. And I was like, this is testament to black people not being hard to reach. It's just that we're looking for people in the wrong places and then complaining that they're very hard to reach. Um, and one closing tradition that we have on this podcast is I love to ask people what is one thing they would do to improve healthcare in their community? However, since we're talking about academia, I think it's only right if we slightly change that question to what would you do to improve academia for your community? And before you answer your question, um, could you specifically define who your community is? Um, and it'd be great if we could start with you, Dr. Etty. Oh, um, so I suppose I would define my community as, as black people living in the UK. Um, and I worked 
on the COVID vaccine trials um, throughout some of the pandemic. And I think throughout the whole time I worked on these the trials, um, I don't think I actually saw one black participant. And I, you know, so I wasn't surprised to hear that uptake among black communities in the UK was low. And, and so I suppose this sort of just, this relates to what you're saying about um, black communities, black people being hard to reach. You know, I just want to really open up academia to sort of consider new avenues and at every level, you know, and even thinking about how we recruit, how we, uh, you know, approach study design, how we actually, you know, where at what point we consider ethnicity as being important. You know, I think academia needs to be opened up, I think, really to different ways of thinking. I know that's a bit vague, but that is sort of how I see things going forward for me. I, I want to perhaps propose a different point of view that perhaps affects my work positively as I go forward. And Professor Alfie, same question. Um, did you define who your community is and how specifically you would improve academia for that? I think I w will define my community as um, the black children. And I think that I would like to, and I see them as patients, but as also as potential academics um, and also as, as identifiers of the research questions. So I would like us to continue with outreach from as early as primary school, from as early as nursery school, letting them see us um, going in, you know, we should be the, going in and helping with reading. And I don't see this as just for the black children. I'm seeing also the white children, because because if you if they grow up with the memory of these black women and men who read to them from nursery school, it, it it's it, the, the racism is not is not going to be there. So as early as we possibly can, I would want to see the parents participate in research. We have posters up in our hospital, but also if you're in your GP's practice, ask questions what research is going on, what research can I take part in? And I have this question that I would like to be answered because anybody is able to set a research agenda for anybody else. And if you can raise those questions, have the confidence in yourself that you know what is wrong with your child that you would like researched and put that question out there. Amazing. And Dr. Willows, um, lastly. Um, yeah, I would describe my or define my community as black people in the diaspora because I feel quite connected not just to black people here but both um, in North America and across the African continent and what I would like to see done to improve academia is having diversity of thought and having academia being more open to a range of ways of approaching problems range of ways of gathering knowledge developing knowledge and that means that we have to open ourselves to more than just the characters that we've been used to within our academic spaces. Amazing. And I I think one of the, the key parts that maybe you haven't realized, um, I think just this conversation alone is some of that outreach that we talked about being people being able to see that there is black women in the world of academia. And I'm so glad that I could have 
had this conversation with you all um, because I'm sure it will allow for just one person to be able to follow in your footsteps. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to have this discussion. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for the wonderful work that you've been doing. And and thank you so much to the listeners of this episode. Um, we'll be back again, same time next week, with another episode of the Mind the Gap podcast, where we speak to amazing people about improving healthcare, specifically for black and brown people across the world.